I'm Tisha Bader and in the news, Whoopi Goldberg's return to The View after completing her two-week suspension over remarks she made about the Holocaust, saying in part that it was not about race. In response to those comments, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, spoke to The View and to Whoopi to correct, clarify, and educate on why those statements were false and harmful. And we are fortunate to have Jonathan Greenblatt here on JBS with us to discuss what happened, how he feels about it now, and to talk about his new book. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm a fan of JBS, so it's great to be on the show. Thank you so much. So as I mentioned just over two weeks ago, the hosts of The View were discussing the banning of the book Mouse, which is a a cornerstone in Holocaust education, a graphic novel that was taken out of the curriculum by a Tennessee school board. During this discussion, Whoopi Goldberg made a comment uh, saying the Holocaust is not about race, it's about man's inhumanity to man, saying this is two groups of white people. What was your response initially when you heard about this? Well, Look, so stepping back, I think we need to recognize that this was happening on the heels of Holocaust Remembrance Day, you know, late in late January, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And I think we're living in a time when we're seeing the twilight of our Holocaust survivors, as unfortunately more and more of them pass. And we've learned the hard way, the Jewish people, that memory is essential, you know, to understanding our world and to make sense of the past so we can protect our future. So all of us in the organized Jewish community, all of us in the broader Jewish community certainly do focus on these issues of memory. And we know that the Shoah, the systematic annihilation of the Jewish people was the singular evil in the history of humanity. Never before had this kind of transnational campaign been committed with the intent of exterminating a people. And if we step back and try to understand, well, why did Hitler do it? There can be no justification, clearly, no rationalization. But in his twisted worldview, he promoted the very racist idea that somehow the Aryan master race needed to destroy the subhuman Jewish race. I mean, in so many of his public proclamations, at the core of the Nuremberg Laws, If we try to even read Mouse itself, Tisha, the first page of the book, quotes Adolf Hitler as saying, the Jewish people are certainly a race, they are just not a human one. And while if we then try to take that knowledge, that information, those facts, and bring it to the view, I think Whoopi Goldberg was talking about race in a very contemporary context, as in so often the public conversation about race in America in the 2020s is very much about race in the context of black versus white. The subjugation of Africans, you know, hundreds of years ago and their subsequent enslavement, and then the legacy of systemic racism we still live with. That is a fact, right? I believe systemic racism is real. You can look at the data. All the indicators show us. And yet, to somehow think that's the only time that race has mattered in the annals of history, or let alone in recent history, is just dead wrong. And so when she said it's white on white, I mean, teacher, give me a break. I mean, we know as Jews that we're a multiracial Jewish community to begin with. We know as Jews 
that we have black Jews and brown Jews and Asian Jews and Mizrahi Jews and Sephardi Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Bukharan Jews and so on and so forth. We have our own diversity. But I think we also know that anti-Semitism is at the beating heart of hate. And whether it's you know white nationalists on the right or it's radical anti-Zionists on the left or it's you know, Nation of Islam members or mess some, you know, messianic faiths. So often they have the Jews in their crosshairs. So I don't care how you vote. I don't care where you pray. I don't care where you're from. I care what you value. And if you value decency and respect and tolerance, anti-Semitism has no place, period. And that's why I called out Whoopi Goldberg the way that I did. And you called her out and then you were invited on The View the next day. Mm-hmm. So she initially apologized and she she quoted you. Mm-hmm. Then you came on The View the next day and I, I believe she apologized again. Yeah. Were you were you satisfied? You, you write about how it was important for you to forgive her. Well, I think I guess there's two. There's a there's a sort of there's a Jewish value here. And then there's an ADL practice. There's the Jewish value of teshuva which is this notion of repentance, this acknowledgement that we're all fallible, that we all sin, and that we all need to account for those sins and can do so by acknowledging them and asking God for forgiveness. So I think that is a Jewish value that's immemorial, right? It is embedded in our teachings and in our Torah and so important to so many uh, aspects of our practice of our faith. And so, yeah, I, when she apologized, again, and so many times before Whoopi Goldberg, whether it was Myers Leonard, a basketball player who made a really nasty anti-Semitic comment playing video games last year that was recorded, or Nick Cannon, who was an entertainer who was entertaining some obnoxious anti-Semitic ideas by members of the Nation of Islam, or so many others. Uh, yeah, we, when someone apologizes with sincerity, Tisha, in an authentic way with a desire to do better and learn, I think it's incumbent to accept that. Now, I'll also say that at ADL, we deeply believe in this practice. So you have serial offenders who may faux apologize, but who seem constitutionally incapable of any real contrition. And I think of people like Louis Farrakhan, Mel Gibson, um, I would say Tucker Carlson, I would say um, there are others who are uh, uh, informed or alerted why this trope is problematic, that it invokes anti-Jewish stereotypes, that there's an ugly history behind it, or they said something really offensive, and they ignore. For those people, like, I don't accept a faux apology, like I just said, but for those who do it with sincerity, for those who do it, like Abe Foxman before me, my predecessor, who, you know, a giant, who led ADL with such strength um, and integrity for decades, I believe in that practice too. So we try to apply that here. And look, I think it was very advantageous, Tisha, that she did apologize and invited me on the show. and We could talk about the Shoah in front of her millions and millions and millions of people. I mean, this is one of the most watched programs in daytime television. So that was a learning opportunity and we tried to take advantage of it. Absolutely. And I want to, get back in a minute to what you're talking about as far as forgiveness and 
um, giving the people the opportunity, giving people the opportunity to engage with you and be educated. But I just want to get back to her comments for a second. You know, the media sort of picked up on that phrase. She said the Holocaust is not about race, which was clearly uh, offensive and absolutely false, as you said. But getting back to her talking about, you know, these were two groups of white people. And actually, before she says that initial comment, she said something about these are two, you know, white people fighting among themselves or something like that. And again, I don't I don't think there was any malice. I don't think Mm -hmm. she intended for something um, to be taken as it was or to sound as it did. But something about that felt to me that it could come across as as dismissive or diminishing somehow, you know, trying to distinguish saying, well, this was the Holocaust and that is racism. And these were two groups of white people. So it, it just felt a little dismissive to me. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And now I feel dismissive. I mean, these weren't two groups of people fighting. This was the Nazi death machine, systematically dehumanizing Jewish people, denying them their rights, literally herding them into ghettos, starving them, brutalizing them, and then shipping them off to death camps where they were either incinerated or worked to death. You know, I mean, that is what happened. Let's not lay this out of white on white. No, 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 no. This notion of white, black, I mean, again, I'm not going to deny the reality of anti-black racism today, but race is a social construct. So today we think about it like that. The Nazis thought about it in terms of Jews. By the way, ask any white supremacist today, ask any of the far-right extremists today, they'll tell you, oh yeah, the Jews are a race. Just ask them. And in fact, part of their animus towards us, Tisha, is that because so many of us present as white, quote unquote, they think we can hide our race. I mean, that is at the nub in many ways of their hatred toward Jewish people because they think we are a race and yet one that doesn't have the same physical characteristics as black people, which makes us more difficult to spot in their twisted, demented worldview. So, yeah, I mean, you're right to drill down on that because it was deeply offensive. At the end of the day, we should, as we've done at the ADL for over 100 years, we fight anti-Semitism in all forms of hate. And again, Whoopi Goldberg and other public persons need to realize that Jewish people still find themselves the victims of hate. And sometimes it is brutal and homicidal and horrible, like the, the, um, the, the murders in Pittsburgh or in Poway or in Jersey City or in Muncie or in Oak, you know, Oak Park, or I could go on. And sometimes it's obvious and visible, like the assaults in Brooklyn, like the flyering in cities across the country, And sometimes it's more subtle kind of harassment, like, again, what we see happening, you know, we're tracking record levels of anti-Jewish harassment across the country. And sometimes there are like microaggressions, a term that's very much in vogue, like dismissing Jewish pain, like, you know, saying as suggesting as if it's white on white, it's not real. It's a conflict between two people. So I think we need there's a span of anti-Semitism. There's a there's a spectrum. All of it is problematic, whether or not people are being murdered in the pews where they pray or they're being 
kind of metaphorically denied their rights, all of it, I would suggest, we need to call out. And and just when you speak about, you know, are Jews a race? What are we? Are we a people? Are we an ethnic group? Are we a religion? I, I've, I've heard from different people that that sort of started a conversation among Jews themselves on this issue. Did you hear any, you know, were you uh, aware <laughs> of any? Lots. Yeah. I heard from people all over the country. I get emails, I get text messages, people call me, you know, uh, I heard about it lots. I mean, I heard some people say, we're not a race. Like I, Hitler said we were a race, but we're clearly a religion. So don't call us a race. I heard other people say, that was exactly right. We are an ethnicity. You know, is that really a race? I'm not sure, but we're an ethnicity. Other people said, yeah, we're a race and we need to acknowledge that. I had other people say, look, I'm just a cultural Jew. For me, it's like the things that I do at home. I don't even believe in God. I mean, I've heard everything. Look, Jews are complicated. I think that if I might, for a minute, I think we think about racism, like hating people because they're perceptibly different as being all about, again, the way in America, in our history, it's about how you present, how you show up. And there is a reality of white supremacy. And there is a reality that people who are brown or people who are black or people who are Asian, you know, there's a, or, or by the way, Native American, that they're considered lesser. If you go back to the 20th century, Jews and Irish and Italian immigrants in the first half of the 20th century were considered to be of a different race. And they were, we were denied our rights. Italians were lynched in, uh, Italian laborers were lynched in New Orleans. Irish were routinely discriminated against in New York City and across the country. And again, we know the history of systemic and structural uh, discrimination against Jews in the United States. I mean, ADL was founded in the wake of the lynching of Leo Frank, a Jew falsely accused of a crime, wrongly convicted, and ultimately hung from a tree by a mob. So there is an ugly history of animus against different minorities. But I think at the end of the day, we as Jews need to recognize we don't fit. We're like the square peg in the round hole. We are a religion. We are an ethnic group. We are a culture. We are all of these things at once. And we've seen, you know, I would say anti-religious, like a religious-based anti-Semitism that was perpetrated by the Catholic Church and then the Protestant Church and in mosques um, all over Europe and the Middle East in much of the, you know, the, the epoch, like uh, the, say the 800s to say the 1500s. And then with the advent of, uh, and the Jews were a convenient other to be blamed, to be targeted, to be brutalized when the church or the crown wanted to divert attention from their issues or they were looking for an explanation. And then I think 1500-ish, you start to see the enlightenment, you start to see new ideas. And that's where this false kind of science of race comes in. And it goes from a religion-based anti-Semitism to a race-based anti-Semitism. The Jews are Semites. Right. The Jews are a different. I mean, that's a made up term, if you will. And that's where you get the term anti-Semitism from. And that that persisted through the Holocaust. And then after the founding of the state of Israel, you have like a political anti-Semitism. Well, I don't hate the Jewish people. I don't hate the Jewish faith. I just hate the Jewish nation. But the tropes you see that the anti-Zionists use today, many of which were pioneered by the Soviets, many of which were drawn from the protocols of Zion, the Russian forgery about Jewish power. And you just see this through line. So whether you say you hate the Jewish faith or you hate the Jewish people or you hate the Jewish state, all of it 
is a problem for us. So let's talk about your book, which deals with a lot of what we've been speaking about. It is called It Could Happen Here. I'm glad you have a copy. I, I did, and I really uh, I found it really interesting. When did you start writing this, and was there a specific impetus that pushed you to decide to write a book? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think this has been a very tumultuous ride over the last six and a half years of ADL. When I took this job, I was coming out of the West Wing, and people thought, why are you going to ADL? Like, these issues of anti-Semitism, it's in decline. And even hate, Barack Obama's elected president, like things are getting better. Is that really the place you want to go? And sure enough, nobody asks those questions anymore. I mean, from 2015 to 2020, anti-Semitic incidents has more than doubled in the United States. We've hit record numbers in 2019 and 2020. We're still tabulating 2021. So as the oldest anti-hate organization, we've seen a lot. But I started thinking about the book a couple of years ago, to be honest, even before Pittsburgh. It was really 2016. We saw so much craziness every day in that campaign, like the Jewish Star tweet, the America First slogan, then the surge of hate crimes right after the election. And I thought I need to start taking some notes and making sense, trying to make sense of this. Then, of course, in 2017, we hit Charlottesville after, you know, again, a bunch of things happened in the first half of the year. And then, of course, 2018 was Pittsburgh. So I started working on the idea of a book. I think I started writing some things down probably as far back as 2018. And then, you know, things started getting crazy and I kind of shelved it, went back to it. So these are always it's an iterative thing, basically, Tisha. But I had a draft proposal by the end of 2020. And then January 6th happened. I went back and rewrote the whole thing. And I came up with the title after January the 6th because it became very clear that this democracy that we have, this society that we share, that these are not preordained, that these are not necessarily fated to continue forever unless we do the work. So in many ways, the proposal developed but January the 6th was a kind of punctuation mark. You got to get it done. And so I did. And I wrote it over the course of uh, really, I took all those notes that I'd collected over the years and turned them into a book in the first half of 2021. And I'm glad you mentioned the title because I want to just mention the, the com- there's a subtitle or the complete title is Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. And I wonder if someone were to say to you, Jonathan, you're being an alarmist. Things are not that bad. How would you respond? Well, I'd respond with a story that builds off of the opening kind of vignette in the book. So my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor from Germany. Germany was the only place that he and his Jewish family ever knew. My great grandfather fought in the First World War. And you know, as he told me as a kid growing up, that it was a great place to live as Jews. And so he never would have imagined that the only country he ever knew with the rise of uh, the Third Reich and the Nazi death machine would turn on him, regard him and his family as enemies of the state, destroy everything that he ever loved, slaughter almost his entire family and network of friends. 
and forced him to flee as a refugee, which he did, and he came here to the United States. He never could have guessed as a young man that his grandchildren, me, my brother, my cousins, would be born in America, ever. Unfathomable, if you will, unthinkable. Flash forward, uh, my wife and my in-laws, they are Jews from Iran. Iran is the only country they've ever known. And it was a good place to grow up and to, to live. They're from Isfahan. Uh, and then, wouldn't you know, with the rise of Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution and the fascist fundamentalist regime that the only country they'd ever known, they never could have guessed. My father-in-law never could have imagined as a young man that one day this country, the only one he ever knew, would one day turn on him and his family, regard them as enemies of the state, destroy everything that they ever loved, and force them to flee as refugees. And they also came to America. I mean, my, grand, my father-in-law as a young man never could have guessed that his grandchildren, my kids, my nieces, my nephews, would be born in this country, Tisha. So by the same token, as I sit here today, a somewhat young man, as my grandfather couldn't have imagined it, my European Jewish grandfather couldn't have imagined it, and my Persian father-in-law could have imagined it, I need to have the imagination to consider the unthinkable. Because there is no guarantee, no matter how good it is here, that my grandchildren will be born in this country. My grandfather's experience 70 years ago, my father-in-law's experience 40 years ago, tells me that as a Jew who's aware of his own family's history, let alone the suffering of our people for millennia, that we have no guarantees. And so I really wrote this book to call out the fact that the unthinkable can happen even here where we think it's so good, and it is good. This democracy is more fragile than we appreciate, and that's why I wrote the book, to call to wake people up, because again, it could happen here unless we stop it. And you talk about the fact that we're, we're not at that point, like you just said, but that if we continue going down a specific path and allow hate to be unchecked, things can spiral, things can unravel. Yes. And you present a pyramid of hate in the book to kind of explain how one thing can lead to the next thing, to the next thing. Talk about the very bottom of that pyramid for a minute, because I think this is particularly tricky in our day-to-day -day lives when we come across someone saying something inappropriate. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, something somewhat biased. Look, to address hate, it, what what are the steps we should take? And because right. it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate sometimes. Sure. So I would say right off the bat that hate is a corrosive force. Hate is like an acid that eats away, like at the fabric of society, slowly deteriorating it. And then it goes slowly until it goes fast. It starts with what we have at the bottom of our pyramid of hate, biased attitudes, which could be like stereotyping or fear of differences or making biased comments or, you know, seeking out information to conform to the way what someone thinks. Now, biased attitudes don't necessarily lead to violence, but if unchecked, biased attitudes can take hold. Like, for example, Tisha, the idea that 
All Jews are wealthy. Jews control the media. Um, Jews are responsible for the world's wars. We know as Jews, the danger that happens when anti-Semitic tropes settle in, seep into the bloodstream, and they affect the whole body politic. We've seen that here in this country. We have extremists on the right who engage in stereotyping about Jews controlling events from behind the scenes. The Rothschilds, they used to say. Now they say Soros or Adelson are somehow manipulating events. And we see it from Jews on the far left. They don't say it's the Jewish people. They say it's the Jewish state that's controlling things from behind the scenes, manipulating Congress, changing things. I mean, when we don't challenge those attitudes, we don't call out those biases, they, be, they can harden and calcify into the conventional wisdom. One other thing I want to get to, which is kind of the flip side of the pyramid, is when we spoke about Whoopi Goldberg and other instances of people saying things that are inappropriate or offensive or hateful or inaccurate, you call it out as the ADL, you reached out. This idea of council culture, which I think yeah. is, is so interesting and important as opposed to cancel culture, which we're seeing so much today. Explain why council culture in your mind is the better option. Well, again, I come back to, to Shuva. I come back to this idea that we're all fallible. We're all human. We all err. We all make mistakes. I mean, our whole, in many ways, if I think about the ritual of Judaism and how every, with the, with the new year, with Rosh Hashanah, we then move to Yom Kippur, right? And we account for our sins. Like, we don't believe in cancel culture. It's antithetical to Judaism. And it also seems to me that at the end of the day, what you want is for the person who's saying these things to change their mind, to have like, a different attitude, just, to learn, and maybe then be able to understand things within a context and change their points of view and change that hateful speech or the inappropriate comment. I mean, we literally just had, you know, the Parsha about the golden calf that we read in Torah, we read in Shul last week. And that was about, you know, the people of Israel, I don't, I, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not going to pretend that I am, but that was all about, again, a, a grievous error, you know, when Moses was on Sinai, and then he called the Jewish people to account for it, and, you know, there was this act of repentance, if you will, where they recognized the ill of praying to this, this idol. I mean, I think, look, my friend Nick Cannon, who I alluded to earlier, right, who himself was sort of playing footsie with these awful stereotypes about Jews and Semites with, with a member of the Nation of Islam on his podcast a few years ago. He's the one who shared this idea with me. We don't need a cancel culture. We need a council culture. And I believe in that because even though we didn't use that term at ADL, we believe you call people in rather than just call them out. We've always done that. It's a Jewish value, I think. And so if we can shift to a council culture, we can help people understand when they do wrong and we can help them to do better. Now, I just want to say, this is not political correctness. This is not saying that we need to police ourselves, but we do need to have the, the kind of moral imagination to understand and walk in another's shoes. We do need to have the empathetic capacity to realize how other people hear and feel what we say and what we do. And we need to have, I think, you know, there are some moral absolutes. I'm not a moral relativist at all. I think there are some real hard truths. Anti-Semitism is wrong, period. And you might not like some things that the state of Israel does, but that does not give you the right to demonize it 
uh, to delegitimize it, to dehumanize Israelis. Like that is wrong. Making unhinged comments like Israel's keeping Palestinian children in cages, like AOC said, there's no truth to that. There's no evidence of that. There's not a scintilla of fact to that statement, not a shred. Or these other statements that she made that you can't talk about Palestine. Palestine and the Middle East conflict is the most talked about geopolitical conflict in the world. So I say all this to only make the point that whether you come from the right or the left, whether you couch your anti-Semitism and your bias and your, 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 your acts of bias in the veneer of political correctness, all of it is wrong and it needs to be called out clearly and consistently and unequivocally by people on all sides. No moral relativism. Jonathan, thank you so much. The book is It Could Happen Here. And uh, as Jonathan says in the book, it, it's, it is almost a, a, a playbook, a guidebook, a handbook, if you will, to combat hate and anti-Semitism, something the ADL does every single day. And Jonathan, we thank you for that work. And thank you so much for joining us here on JBS. What a pleasure. It's nice to be on. And I hope we get to do it again soon. Thank you very much. Jonathan Greenbot is CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, and we thank him truly for his time today. Also, thanks, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland, managing director, Dara Golub, our transmission manager, John McDevitt, technical manager, Michael Paley, and producer, Carol Lilienthal. And thank you for watching In the News. I'm Tisha Bader. Be well. <laughs>